News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel, here as always with Professor Christina Greer. Uh, we're joined today by Nolan Hicks of The Post, the New York Post, the real Post, to discuss this crazy Queens District Attorney race that just won't quit. After that, Victoria Bekempis joins us to go, as ever, in the courts with Alex Brooklyn, where we're going to be talking about Jeffrey Epstein. Let's get right to it. Nolan, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's do like a little walking tour around the city right now. Okay. We will start to the left. To the left. To the left. Literally. Well, I am the left. I was about to say, if we start at the left, we have to talk about Cuomo since he is the left. Which is in the east in Queens where Melinda Katz is now up by, by 16 votes, but all progressives are equally progressive? Yes. What's uh What's happening? If you have a great answer, I'm, I'm more than happy to hear it. It's an extraordinarily close race. This is the the Queens District Attorney race that we have been we've been fixated on. That's 16 votes apart now in the uh, in the recount. It's Florida, but in our backyard. Mm. It's well, it's incredible, right? So you have two different pools of votes still outstanding, and everyone is banking on the outcome of sort of two separate vote counts that have to happen. One is the manual recount where they're going to go through and they're going to, by hand, retabulate every single ballot cast in the races, some 90,000 votes. And the whole goal of that is there are give or take 400 ballots that got put through scanners on election day but didn't register a vote. So you have to go and you have to physically inspect them. And if the bubble isn't circled in but the bubble is filled with a check mark or with an X, that's a valid vote. If the ballot was just left empty, then it's not a valid vote. And so you have a couple of different calculuses happening simultaneously. You have the Melissa Katz folks who think that these undercounted ballots pretend fairly well for them, that they might be able to grow their lead a little bit. Is and that then, because old people aren't competent voters? You think they'd have a lot of experience, seriously. Like, no, why why, why I, I would those benefit her? I don't think so. There are people in the Katz campaign that say that there are a good chunk of those undercounted ballots they think that came out of – precincts that are friendlier to cats. Which is southeast Queens and, in fact, most of the borough outside of, of, of outside the west. Of, yeah, sort of that western corridor right along the East River. Right, where, where your community in Manhattan every day. Right. Yeah. Um, so and, that, then, and then you the have the second, right, and then you have the second, which are these 114, give or take, ballots that were cast provisionally on election day where, for whatever reason, people who are likely registered Democratic voters, got provisional ballots. Maybe it's because they went to the wrong polling site but in the right election district. Maybe it's because you know they have a maiden name on the BOE books instead of their married name. And so you go and you haggle it over all these votes. The votes that are left in this pool, it's again, give or take 100, 114 votes, are uh, votes where most people believe that the affidavit swearing that they are duly – registered members of the Democratic Party were not properly filled out. And so the question is whether or not those ballots should be tallied because of the paperwork error. I've got I've got a quick question. Sure. Because we know in New York we have a closed primary system. Yes. So would this bode well again for Katz and not Caban, assuming that some of the people who were super enthusiastic about Caban possibly did not register nine months ago when they should have if they were Democratic voters? Nobody knows. 
Okay. Let me jump in there for one second. So there were about 2,400 – there was a big pool of votes that were thrown out. About 2,500 votes of which the 114 are a subset of that 2,500. So so, so these 114 we're talking about, there's 90,000 accepted votes. Yes. And that's where uh, on election day it appeared the command was up by about 1,100. They did this recount and the – Conventional wisdom going into the recount was this would split the absentee ballots. No, not the recount. Excuse me. When, when the, going into counting the provisional and the absentee yeah. ballots. So there's right. the, the, the after count, if you mm-hmm. will. And the full count. And when they do that, it turns out that all the absentee ballots were basically for cats. And that's where she was up 20 and now 16 as they, they've, they've she, kept counting. Mm-hmm. She managed to gain 1,120 votes out of a pool of – whether well, there were 6,000 combined absentee. Well, I mean the, the math gets complicated, but the, the, she was able to make up a tremendous amount of ground. And that's because Melinda Katz, unlike Tiffany Caban, had an actual effort to get people who may not be in the city on primary day to fill out their absentee mm-hmm. ballots, to return their absentee ballots. And that allowed her to pick up a lot of ground. I mean, or it's might just, be old and just wanted to lock in votes, you might also think. Yes. Right. And it is one of those things that people have been around and done campaigns for a long period of time. You put a lot of emphasis on you know, getting people – if you can't get them to vote absentee, get them to vote absentee right. so you can get those ballots in and don't even have to worry about them. Right. And you know how she to get them She had that out. program. She knows she Tiffany the, the not. machine to, right. to know how to do that. Well, I mean, the machine is... No, it, when I say machine, right. I'm not talking about yeah. like the queen's machine that right. we know of. Right. But it's like anyone who's a seasoned politician knows you knows have to have this. Exactly. Right. And Tiffany Caban was not and did not. And okay. Tiffany Caban's campaign, the city did a lot of really great reporting on this, was beset with a lot of internal turmoil, especially early on. They were struggling to get their bills paid. They, uh, you know, started leaning on sort of the WFP apparatus mm-hmm. pretty heavily. Uh, Monica Klein came in. And so you, that was sort of in the last month or so of the election, and that's when she really started to take off, when she started to have an actual organized, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of campaign machinery she could lean on, which the WFP has. And they they got into a lot of trouble about many, many years earlier. Not so incidentally, (laughs) they had a nominally, you know, charging for services separate operation that wasn't part of the WFP, but it was registered at the same place and was exactly them. And they they were giving away services and they sort of returned – to that business after after protesting that this was unfair and escaping charges. Right. Um, so so well, these 116 ballots. It's 100 – It's 116? 114. It was 120 and then they counted six yeah, of which, which Katz got one and Caban got five. Yeah. And so it shrank it to 114. And, and these are the ones where, where somebody did not write Democrat on, on, on this, this long thing you're filling in because you're at the wrong polling place or whatever. But you are a registered Democrat. If you didn't register in time for this, shout out to all the Bernie Sanders voters who were super upset about this in, in 2016. Yes. You have to register like nine months in advance right. in New York. This will change um, now. Yes. But it hasn't changed yet um, with, with this new legislature. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you haven't, you just can't vote in this primary and you're SOL. But these are people who were registered to vote, filled these out, and they missed this one little part. And like maybe those end up being command voters who are, who are new to this. Sure. Maybe then, it's you know old folks who went to the school across the street instead of the school down the road. I did that. I, I, which, I got to the right place I, eventually in Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same. So you know, there's a 16-vote margin of error. That there are 114 of these ballots that were not properly certified. Mm-hmm. Still outstanding. And so the question is whether or not those ballots count. And that's the subject of the court fight going on in Queens right now. And this is what they ruled on Tuesday. They're going to do the recount. So they're going to go look for those 90,000. So out of the 90,000 90, votes cast, okay. there are still 500-ish votes up in the air. 
114 are ballots that were cast by people who are registered Democrats, but they didn't properly certify themselves as registered Democrats on the ballot. And then there are give or take 400 of these ballots still outstanding where people put a ballot through a scanner on election day and it did not register a vote. So they have to go back and hand tabulate those ballots along with every other ballot cast in the race to make sure the scanners got everything 100 percent right. And there will be lawyers from both campaigns looking over the shoulders at each ballot as this happens. The process has been by most standards pretty open and pretty transparent when they were haggling over the first set of ballots, you know, whether or not they were properly registered, whether or not people were improperly disqualified because, you know, they went to the Board of Elections using their maiden name instead of the married name, whatever. That fight happened in full view of everyone, happened in full view of lawyers from both campaigns, happened in full view of the press, court hearings Mm -hmm. yesterday, reporters were let in. That all happened in full view of the press. The manual recount is underway in Queens right now. That's happening. That's open. The press can come in and, and keep an eye on it. Lawyers from both campaigns are there. What type of person is the one who's charged with counting these ballots? Uh, It's a Board of Elections employee. So the the Board of Elections, we've had Michael Benjamin on talking about this. There there are a bunch of political patronage hacks who generally fuck everything up. They've they've done a very clean and good job here and there's really been no issue with them. Because there's been all of this ambient talk about fighting the machine, because Cuomo is like low turnout elections don't count. Um, I am the left um, and so forth and he endorsed Katz. There's been sort of ambient suspicion around them even as they've done a good job and in some ways as they're raising money for what's going to be a lengthy court fight that both sides will need money for, people on the left with Caban have poisoned the waters here by pushing very early all sorts of conspiracy theories on Twitter, in calls to reporters. This is Alessandra Biaggi who's one of the new state senators who defeated the IDC folks. Who went um, on Twitter and said some stuff that got her pretty quickly rebuked. The, but there were a few of these. Ocasio-Cortez who said something suggestive, less so compared to Biaggi about this. And again, in calls with reporters, they're like, something is wrong here and the machine is stealing this election, which I think is intentional or otherwise a misunderstanding of how the machine works. And so now we're they, they've backed off that a little and come on without directly repeating those claims was saying uh, we need to make sure everything is properly registered. We're down to this assuming the recount at the end of the recount. We're still at about the same margin, which seems likely, but who knows, mm-hmm. right? And, and Katz is ahead, which everyone is assuming. Like when I'm talking not for attribution with, with people around Caban, they're saying this is an uphill fight when you're, you're down at the count at this point, even just by 16 votes out of 90,000 cast. But if you have this handful of people who are new to voting, who messed up these forms, maybe a bunch of those people are these new DSA voters, new Queens arrivals in some cases, that, that's their bet, and those votes should be counted. The legislature has just passed this bill sort of shifting from like a strict intent standard They've done a bunch of good things to like help get new voters registered, to make sure people can actually vote in primaries and to make sure if you mean to cast a ballot and it's obvious what your intent is, shout out to Florida again. Yeah, Yeah, that ballot should be counted. Cuomo has yet to sign that. It has yet to be transmitted is my understanding. Yes. The legislature is yet to – having passed the bill, they then have to deliver it to the governor's desk for him to sign. However – the governor can just can 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 get it and, and do that w- without that. That's not the usual process. And so he has a thumb on the scale. No one has handed in the sheet of paper to try to you know scoop up his thumb with. And he is not going to reach out and do that. But it is in that sense symbolically not as a, a conspiracy but a last gasp of this machine because the old counting rules that make this a 
more uphill climb benefit uh, cats. Uh, Cuomo would much prefer to have cats in that office and is very upset at this conception that there's a growing progressive wave and tries to keep dismissing this as low turnout elections that don't matter. And look, I whoop Cynthia and Nixon. Right. And there are a lot of things that can be said about a lot of those points, a couple of which are the city has provisions for manual recounts in ways that don't exist in other parts of the state, which could end up benefiting Caban. If you think new voters, maybe they've never worked with a ballot before, maybe they don't know how to you know, properly fill in the Scantron form, what have you, um, maybe she picks up some votes there. Maybe she's able to close the gap. Um, so the manual recount provision does offer sort of a, a, a check that doesn't exist elsewhere in the state. And that's not nothing. And I guess sort of to the other point, and I think that's sort of the bigger point is no matter what the outcome of this ends up being, this has been the second massive political earthquake in Queens in the last two years. And you can only have so many low turnout elections where everyone blames what is sort of by any eye sort of a political revolution in the borough on low turnout before it ends up you know, so Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, yes, and then the IDC, and this is really over about fourteen months, and now Caban, three earthquakes right? actually, right, and then Caban, three earthquakes. I was thinking of Ocasio Cortez and Caban, at because I, I feel like the, the the motivations driving sort of the IDC thing were a little different, and there was a lot of antipathy in the city towards the IDC, sort of separate and apart from, you know, whether or not there are questions of is the Democratic Party sort of left enough. If that makes sense. Whereas like in Western Queens, you have a, a belt basically now of incredibly motivated, incredibly liberal voters who want to go and cast a ballot every time they can as a way of registering their dissatisfaction with the political establishment and, uh, and as a way of registering their dissatisfaction in a lot of ways with the president. The president has activated these. And you talk to any person who knows Queens politics and you sort of look at it. I mean it's like the president has managed to turn people who were very low – propensity voters in Western Queens, people who had just arrived in the neighborhood, just moved in, maybe got registered, maybe didn't get registered, maybe didn't regularly turn out and vote, and has turned them into folks who come out and vote regularly at every single opportunity. And show up Amazon, if you want, as a fourth earthquake between fourth earthquake. elections. Yeah. So, okay, we've had four. Basically, Queens is California. Right. And... Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Earthquake, right, from, 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 from tectonic political movements, yes. Right. So, I mean, you know, I've always been concerned with such the just the low turnout yeah. period in New York City politics. But this is, you know, this is which cuts to and, Cuomo's other point that low turnout is somehow an aberration in city politics, which it's not. It's not. Um, and don't forget, the shadow of Queens is so strong. We've got a president. We've got a governor. We've got me. You know, all of us are from Queens originally. And so Queens is a very important place with, what, 2.36 million people. So I think there's an undercount. Listen to last week's episode. Obviously, because we know that Queens is one of the most diverse areas in, in the country. And hardest to count. Um, well, because we have a lot of mixed status families there too. So why would you even open the door for the census? We Listen to last week's episode, listeners, if you haven't already. Um I want to fast forward just really quickly. Sure. So recounts happen, plural. Mm -hmm. We figure things out. Give us a scenario of how does Katz move forward if she wins and how does Caban move forward if she wins? Because either way, it'll be a squeaker. And let's just say one is victorious by, you know, 100 votes. Maybe, I mean, in a crazy world, 1,000 votes, right? right? Which is still a small, small margin. Right. So – 
How do they move forward after this is done? What Until is Queens- November and after that, assuming victory yeah. in November. Yes. Um, and, and walk us through some scenarios for November because I have some, some thoughts I, about I th- There has been a lot of smoke coming out of the rumor mill that if Caban were to win the Democratic primary, that the Queens Republican Party might be able to talk Greg Lasick, who was the third – the runner-up out of the th- – Judge the, Lasick. The third, the third guy uh, in the contest into maybe taking the line for the Republicans uh-huh. come November. That's Everyone's- Judge Lasek. Oh, Lasek. If we remember from our right. debate. Lasek. Exactly. Again, and- see podcast episode where we interviewed the candidates, Sans Cats. Um, and is in a general election, what do the turnout patterns look like? Uh-huh. When you have someone who is uh, very liberal and Tiffany Caban against someone who is very much a product of the old Queens establishment. Greg Glasek. Glasek. Long-time prosecutor, long-time judge. Long-time judge, top aide to Dick Brown for a number of years. Which to me would make very strange bedfellows when you think about Southeast Queens, which is is what I will call black queens, right? Because Caban ostensibly ignored all of black queens, but let's just say Lasek and Caban are on the ballot. I could see where the black vote could be split in the sense that some would not want to go with Caban because she would appear to be too liberal or inexperienced or insert the name, but... It would be a fascinating race. How, I don't how think anybody Katz and knows. Would, would market, yeah. say, LASAC to black voters I don't would be fascinating that, I to me. I don't know that they would. Mm. I don't... I mean, if Tiffany Caban wins the Democratic nomination... She will have the reluctant backing of the uh, the full Democratic establishment. How, Katz has said so and Meeks has said so. Yeah, I, I, mm. don't, I don't know how... I mean, just... The Republican on the ticket right now is uh, is is uh, I believe his name is Bob. What the fuck? And he is not intending to actually run. He, he told like, the Post as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is a great which is a great interview that my uh, colleague Max Yeager managed to score. He was you know Max asked him so what's your platform? Oh, Good are, you planning, are you planning? What, are you planning? Are you planning to like Rick Lazioing uh, himself? Yeah, like, are you, are you gonna planning gonna to raise money? Are you more? planning to raise money? Good, yeah, good on the Post as, as the Republican paper in certain ways, not on the news side. Um, Sometimes on the news side, for pointing out in that story, um, in their interview with uh, Young Casamitidis, the absurd hollowness of the New York Republican Party, which at this point it's about to have a, a new state leader, is past a joke. It just doesn't exist. It doesn't run candidates in what could be competitive races, um, and it brings in it brings in Proud Boys and so forth. Um, they, they're doing a bad, bad job. There are races that the Republican Party in the city should be able to contest, but it can't. Word, yes. I think that's. That is a very fair analysis. I'm not a Republican, mm. but like when when one side, the DSA, WFP side for conversation's sake, is working hard, organizing, activating, and turning out voters, and the other side can't bother to find candidates, yeah. that, that becomes very unhealthy for just having any sort of discourse that speaks to a, a larger uh, electorate. Okay, so walk us, keep walking us through this scenario. So yep. there's a Caban as the Democratic right. candidate, and, and so someone— And maybe the Republicans can find someone to challenge her because selling Tiffany Caban in Southeast Queens and Northeast Queens would be a challenge. Mm-hmm. And in a general election, maybe the turnout is high enough out of those precincts that you can overcome her support in Western Queens. Gotcha. That's sort of the play. It would be sort of like the old school when you would have 
two or three of the parties unite and then take on the democratic machine back in the day 50, 60 years ago. Or of that, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm not saying it's likely. I'm saying that that is sort of like a model for when you know the old school democratic party in the city used to field someone who everyone just found entirely unpalatable. You could create fusion tickets that could run and could right. win. Um, Republican John Lindsay. Republican John Lindsay. I'm actually His name is Hot John Lindsay, Harry Siegel. That's the name of our podcast episode. There we are. Here, this is this is my current subway read. So, oh, I read that a few summers ago. Hold it, hold it. The Ungovernable City the by Ungovernable John City, Lindsay, which is the the defense if there is one, the defense if there is one to this really great book that was written by uh, Jack Newfield and Paul DeBrule back in the late '70s mm-hmm. when the city collapsed, the abuse of power, which is another sort of fascinating tale. And and that book is basically, and we're really off course, and I apologize for that, but it's basically charting how the combination of Lindsay. Uh, you know, sort of Lindsay laid the groundwork for the city's ultimate financial collapse in the mid-70s, you know, signing off on all these labor deals the city couldn't afford and just on and on, you know, all these programs the city couldn't afford and just on and on. And then Beam becomes mayor. Beam was the right. comptroller at the mm-hmm. time. Beam becomes mayor and the city, you know, through forces both large and small just financially implodes. Well, then that's shout out to Esther Fuchs, Columbia University professor slash mentor of Chrissy Greer, who wrote a book called Mayors and Money, where she talks about the, the financial collapse in New York City. Mm. There's a lot of Mayors really and... great journalism that got done out of the financial collapse. Yeah, because I think that we're still feeling some aftershocks if we want to keep with our earthquake theme. Yeah. Um, and very Which we've got from two to four, and I think that's an entirely accurate right. account between, <laughs> mm-hmm. between Ocasio-Cortez, the IDC... Uh, Amazon and now this. I mean, the center of gravity in Queens is, has just shifted tremendously in the last so two years. What do you think? Once once this is resolved, do we completely forget about this race and then just quickly focus on Manhattan and Cy Vance and I think all the ways who, that he's dropped the ball? It depends who wins. Okay, so, so walk me through that. Melinda Katz wins. Uh huh. You don't have someone coming into office promising a revolution in terms of how criminal justice is conducted in Queens, okay. which Tiffany Caban has done. Right. So if Tiffany Caban wins, you get all these great storylines that could potentially emerge, not dissimilar from how that happened in Boston when they had sort of a liberal reformer run and win uh, for it to become the Suffolk County DA up there. Or in or Philly. Philly. Or Philadelphia. Was like, yeah. Phil Krasner, Krasner was there Krasner, Larry Krasner. Krasner's there. And uh, I was reading the Philadelphia Inquirer. Apparently, the police union in Philadelphia managed to do an end run through the state legislature that managed to get some of Krasner's powers transferred to the state's uh, attorney general hmm. uh, in a quiet sort of dead of night move. What's- I mean, the fact that Krasner was at Caban's victory party yes. said a lot to me about the vision between the two of them and the synergy that I think she was hoping to establish. Yeah, I think there's something to that. So Caban wins. You get all these great – like, how does Caban – work with the New York City Police Department. Mm-hmm. That's a or, potential for huge conflict. Uh-huh. How does she work with the police unions? No, that's, a, that's a potential for huge conflict. So you get all those storylines. How does she work with the own process, you know, her professional prosecutorial staff in her own office? Well, and will, and will she will fire even, half of them or will half of them leave? Right. right? And, the way and it who sticks around and, can, and uh-huh. can they staff and can they actually bring prosecutions when they want to bring prosecutions? I mean, the, a Caban win opens up a whole new book mm-hmm. in Queens in a way that a cat's win. You know, she's promised some reforms. She's promised, but it would not be the the earth-shaking event right. that Tiffany Caban taking the office would have been. And Tiffany Caban possibly winning in Queens, I think, would definitely change the entire conversation about Cy Vance 
and the multitude of challengers that he will most likely have coming up. Yeah. It's kind of strange, though, you know, if you think about it. When was – I mean, you get a competitive district attorney race a generation in New York, mm-hmm. if you think about it, right? And it's just – it's sort of fascinating. So, I mean, if Caban wins, she could be there for 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. And anyone taking on Cy Vance has to know that he's coming with you know the backing of the Manhattan Democrats and all the rest. And taking him on would be a huge challenge and nobody's brought – a successful challenge to a Manhattan district attorney and we're stretching the bounds of my knowledge of New yeah. York City politics. Well, we know that a few people have already declared. Yes. Um, which I'm fascinated by. Just because for me, you know, shifting gears ever so slightly, I mean, we've got Dominique Strauss-Kahn. We've got Weinstein. We've now got Epstein. We've got some Trump stuff. And that's just right the stuff that I know of, and I'm not even a journalist. Yeah. So if we start digging, it's like, how many balls have you dropped for these wealthy folks in New York City since you've been DA. And I think that that opens up a whole new conversation about the role of a DA. And we've got Gonzalez, who's pretty progressive in Brooklyn. If Caban wins, we've got hyper-progressive in Queens. Will Manhattan be itching for that Mm -hmm. or hoping to sort of balance it out in a different way? And the Bronx DA ran unopposed. Right. Who was... Uh, appointed to the job after the old Bronx DA was appointed to a judgeship mm-hmm. because the Bronx. The Bronx. <laughs> but to get back to Manhattan, I think it depends what form does the challenge to Cy Vance take? Does it coalesce around any one candidate or do you have a heavily fractured field, mm-hmm. which I think favors Cy Vance? And if it does coalesce around a candidate, does it coalesce around a liberal challenger promising to overall how criminal justice is done in New York City? In Manhattan, in the yep. borough, uh, county of New York, or do you end up with a situation where you have like a good government guy, right? Challenge Cy Vance, which is not to say Cy Vance isn't good government, which is not to say Cy, I, I'm not offering a critique of how Cy Vance has done his job. No, no, not no but I think that the but framing is four, necessary. There have been four or five cases that have really caught the public's attention, where people have wanted to you know, really sort of dig into why Cy Vance did what he did, and you listed the four of the five. And whoever does ultimately run against Cy Vance has some material. Well, I mean, I was was bringing this up because I was reading your paper in the Post when Al Bragg was interviewed. I read, you know, across the board. (laughs) But Al Bragg, who's challenging Cy Vance, essentially wasn't doing the hyper-liberal argument. He was essentially making this argument of this man has been here for a very long time, clearly has some strong relationships with some questionable characters. We must have a DA who will put the city first and not personal relationships with powerful people. If you can get through the Jeffrey Epstein indictment filed by the Southern District this mm-hmm. week without throwing up. I mean, I threw up quite a few times in my mouth just from the excerpts that I read. It It's horrifying. Well, and first of all, we're going to say this as a podcast. If one more journalist says that Jeffrey Epstein had sex with underage women, that's called girls and it's called raped. Okay, so, like, we have to stop saying that he's having sex with underage women. Like, he's raping girls because that's the that's yeah, alleged, the mathematical. Allegedly. 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 <laughs> Insert some sort of eye roll, wink, wink nonsense uh, right now. 
But um, outside of allegedly right. girls and rape. Girls and, and we've and we've having sex like, with anyone yes. under eighteen well, yes. when you're a grown ass man is considered rape. What is the, what is the age of consent in New York? Is it eighteen or is it sixteen? I just seventeen keep, years old. Seventeen okay. years old is the age of consent in New York. I right. just keep reading these stories about Jeffrey Epstein allegedly no, was, had was, sex with underage women and it's the, like the that indi- would mean you rape little the, girls. The indictment read like something that would have gotten tossed out of the SVU writer's room yeah. as too outlandish. Yeah. Okay. So as we wrap up, um, one, we just want to thank you so much for joining us. At thank FAQ you. We didn't NYC. even get to talk about NYCHA. Hmm? We didn't even get to talk about NYCHA. You got to come back. Which is my bread and butter. You got to come back. Okay. Bread, butter, pickle, sandwich. You'll have me. Yeah. Gross. Perfect. Ew. Welcome to In the Courts with Victoria Bekempis. And this week, it's all Epstein all week long. Victoria? Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. And obviously, major shout out and props to Harry Siegel, Pervez Shalwani, and Kate Bricklett at the Daily Beast, who broke this huge story of uh, Jeffrey Epstein's arrest. Can you tell me anything about how this story came up or how, how you found out about it? Uh, whatever you can tell me. Well, I, I can't be that particular about my sourcing. I can say that this information came to us while Pervez and I were very coincidentally playing miniature golf with our children, uh, <laughs> not intending to break this story. And um, and then some information came to us and uh, we had to scramble. Shout out to Josie for watching the younger miniature golfing children while we did our part there. And a huge shout out to Kate Bricolet, who's been all over the Epstein story for years now and had a serious and substantial pre-write about the case there so that when we were able to confirm the arrest, it wasn't just that tidbit, but we were able to put that into a really rich and full story while on a miniature golf course, possibly while drunk or tipsy. As the best stories uh, seem to happen. So you're telling me you left your kids to play miniature golf while you boozed it up and met with some sources. (laughs) No comment. (laughs) I will say it was was very nice to see uh, Epstein possibly just because of when his plane was landing, possibly as a special fuck you from the non-utterly corrupt backroom deal-making federal prosecutors in New York as compared to those in Florida spend the damn weekend in lockup at MCC we now know in Manhattan and uh, you couldn't couldn't have a nicer guy um, there learning the ropes about prison and asking questions about uh, how to deal with the commissary and whatnot. Overdue. It's been a long time coming. So how long? How long of a time has it been coming? Well, I guess allegations against Epstein started to circulate more than 10 years ago. And where the controversy starts with the criminal prosecution is that after allegations about sexually abusing young women in South Florida came about, Epstein brokered a plea deal with, at the time, the Miami U.S. attorney, Alex Acosta. Exactly. Who is now Trump's secretary of labor. Now, here's the interesting thing. Under this sweetheart deal, there's really no other way to describe it other than sweetheart. Instead of getting federally charged for alleged sexual abuse of minors, Epstein wound up pleading to two state counts in South Florida and ultimately served 
what was it, 12, 13 months in a local jail. Nah. But he didn't even – With 12 hours off a day to be in his own damn office. And after literally his team meeting with Acosta himself behind closed doors in a way that other prosecutors I've talked to said, and I quote here, what the fuck was that? Uh, Just unheard of. He literally would just swing by, check in, and then go about his, his daily business. And then when Cy Vance had an opportunity to throw the book at him, our Manhattan DA, did he not downgrade the charges such that Epstein didn't have to be registered as a sexual offender in New York? So from what I understand is because under the Florida plea deal, he had to register as a sex offender, which also meant that Epstein, who has— Because when you rape children, you should be registered as a sex offender? Well, he didn't plead guilty to raping children, Uh um, but he had to register as a sex offender in Florida. And because he has a residency, he had to register in New York. Now, initially, Manhattan prosecutors during a sex offender registration proceeding had recommended that Epstein be categorized at a lower level than the level he was recommended to be registered at. Which is very rare for prosecutors to do. So that they said, actually, it looks like the guidelines don't apply here initially. Can yes. I ask a dumb question? What do you mean at the level? Like there are different levels of you redditor can look registration? You up online. And if you okay. do this, you'll be creeped out for forever. Like, find all the sex offenders around you. Oh, yeah. yeah. And there's a difference between, a you know, a guy who wants to show his junk and a guy who's been raping children, say. So he was supposed to register. A, a, I want to say level like, three. And, yet, and then showing? Vance's office initially suggested, despite the guidelines having him there, that he register as level one. They've since said that the judge stepped in. He did end up registering as level three. And Vance's office has said that this was uh, effectively that this was a misinterpretation and a mistake by their office and, and backed away from that position. Listen, TikTok, Cy Vance, because you keep having a whole bunch of misinterpretations, starting with Dominique Strauss-Kahn. We've got the Trump kids. We've got Harvey Weinstein. We've got Epstein. Like, your time is limited, homie. Either you step aside or you're going to be taken out. He has way too many opportunities where he should have been a much stronger prosecutor, where we're now finding out. We found this out last time he was elected with the whole Weinstein-Trump stuff when he was running unopposed. And it's like, oh, my gosh, this guy's been asleep at the wheel and, like, clearly— Palling around with, like, rich dudes. I'm over it. And very local politics. But the risk is that that having had no one run last time, so many people run this Everybody time. Everybody and their grandmother is going to be running. And potentially, you know, maybe that sorts itself out. But this could uh, this could end up splitting the, the opposition. And one of the really nice things about being the Manhattan DA is it's Manhattan. There's a lot of money there. And you do these cases and you get all this this money for the office and then you get to share it with other prosecutors. So you sort of you, – you're like Santa uh, – Santa – Santa Vance? Well, I mean let's also be clear. It's like Clueless I Vance is friends with a lot of wealthy, powerful people who would be contributing to his campaign because I think what the Epstein case is going to show us is like, you know, gross, disgusting, horrible men – aren't necessarily hardcore partisans. We're going to see them on both sides, and we should be prepared to have sort of Republicans go down and Democrats go down, and that's just the way it's going to be because gross men are gross men, and I don't really care about your party affiliation. Yet another facet of the Epstein saga attesting to what you said about powerful men is that he has purported associations with Donald Trump, with Bill Clinton, and also with Prince Andrew, and so there's just this whole sprawling thing when it comes to the Epstein case. I mean, we don't know how deep this goes, but, you know, there that is the question. So, I guess the question everybody – like, why is he 
Why is he in? How'd they get him now? So the right. way That's, that I'm they, always curious about the timing. Like, why now? Why the takedown now? With clearly, it's been decades. So probably the most important thing, the key thing in why Epstein was prosecuted now is that Julie Brown of the Miami Herald mm-hmm. did amazing investigative work last year that really probed into how and why did Epstein get this sweetheart deal. And also the fact that under the law, when a plea deal is brokered with U.S. attorneys, victims are supposed to be notified. And that did not happen, which raised still more questions. So It's her reporting is why we know about this deal that Acosta cut and is why Gregory Berman, who Trump appointed to run the SDNY after firing Preet Bharara, reopened the case and they, they – I think implicitly but very clearly credited her reporting with their decision to take another look and that is why it was the public corruption unit working with the trafficking unit that ended up taking this case, we assume. It's weird because Epstein has so many rich friends who have flown on his plane and British loyalty and things like that and uh, Alan Dershowitz, all of whom emphatically deny knowing shit about Shinola um, involving Epstein's crimes, that We don't know necessarily where this is going to lead, but it sure looks like it is headed toward Acosta, who incredibly has um, in his cabinet position for Trump a good deal of authority over our sex trafficking rules and like how what we're supposed to be doing to prevent that. So what's the the charge? They got him on uh, getting uh, girls back and forth on his plane. He cut this deal. No, for doing stuff in Manhattan basically. So the the defense as best they have one is the statutory rape is not rape rape, which they are straight up saying in court, although that that is not the charge. And also that this is double jeopardy because, hey, he already cut a deal. Berman is saying that the deal cut in Florida doesn't apply to him. As a New York prosecutor and crimes were committed in New York in this guy's unbelievable townhouse, which is one of the largest private residences in the city. So defense attorneys are drawing the the line that, you know, statutory rape is not, quote, rape, rape or not, quote, but, you know. It is something to that effect did come up in court. And then I think that the defense attorney also said something like. Hey, this deal was cut. Epstein thought it was a global plea deal and covered everything and he pleaded into the state charges. What will become of defendants doing plea deals if they think that this can happen? So that's one of the things that comes up. But regardless, um, the belief of prosecutors in terms of legal workings is that state stuff and federal stuff don't present a double jeopardy issue. And this is also looming over Trump, incidentally, the idea of state charges, which is something that then Attorney General and also sex creep Eric Schneiderman raised repeatedly and the Tish James, the new Attorney General, also pointed to leading to a number of Trump tweets whining about how New York is out to get him. But how would he have even been – what I'm confused about is how would he have even been able to cut a plea deal in Florida for children that he allegedly raped in New York? It turns out that Jeffrey Epstein wasn't only having a recruiting network with other people helping him find girls and then um, getting those girls to recruit other girls in only in Florida, that he was not actually respecting state boundaries and that he was also doing statutory rape and various other terrible acts in New York allegedly – Allegedly. And there was a woman who came out today, you said. Who did a TV interview um, saying that she'd been recruited and that she was then raped in the no consent at all, not just she was too young to consent sense while she was underage in his townhouse in Manhattan. 
So we have a lot of accusers. Several of them were outside the courthouse when he was there at the beginning of this week saying that they wanted to see him finally held to some sort of real account. How old are these accusers now? Like, what is the range of age range of the accusers? Do we know? If I had to surmise, just simple arithmetic, so the alleged acts that he's charged with in New York um, were between a period of 2002 and 2005. Prosecutors say some of his victims were as young as 14. So I guess that would be 2019 now, so early 30s, I suppose. And and several of them are speaking out now and – Offering their perspectives on this, again, they did not know about the plea deal he reached despite victims necessarily doing so. And at the press conference, both the federal prosecutors and the FBI made a point of saying that their first concern now is with victims, specifically asking others to come forward and promising to handle this with, with dignity and care, which on one level I suppose should be a given and on the other hand was a really an uncommon thing for uh, law enforcement officials to stress and to stress repeatedly um, in in the course of, of speaking about this. So as you can tell from everything we've discussed here, there is a lot going on with the Jeffrey Epstein criminal case right now. And a lot more is probably going to happen in a very short amount of time. It's Wednesday afternoon, maybe even later today. Yes, we're still waiting for some papers to drop. Right now, he's in federal jail. His lawyers are going to renew... In these papers that are expected, their argument for why he should get bail. Prosecutors, they don't want him getting out before the trial because they contend he's a guy of infinite means. He's got private planes, houses everywhere, and can flee. So, yes, we're expecting papers to be exchanged on both sides. And there's a court proceeding scheduled for Monday where this issue is going to get discussed uh, in further detail. This will be interesting. Yes, interesting indeed. (laughs) Victoria, thank you so much. Uh, We will see you hopefully next week in the courts. In the courts. In the courts. In the courts? What? In the courts. FAQ. FAQ NYC is supported by a grant from Civil, a blockchain company aiming to reshape the business of news and by listeners like you. We recorded this week at the McSilver Institute, where we are headquartered. That's the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU. A special thank you to Nolan Hicks. Nolan Hicks. Of The Post, who came and joined us today. The Real Post. And a special thank you to our executive producer, Alex Brooklyn. And shout out to Adam Kamara, our producer, who set up the equipment at McSilver and is mixing the show this week. Remember, if you have to ask, tune into the fact for some answers. Review us on iTunes and reach us on all social media to discuss it. To the left, to the left. Everything you own is in a box to the left. You must not know about me. You must not know about me.